Welcome back, everyone, to Gold Shields, the podcast that gives you the best true crime stories directly from the mouths of the detectives and investigators who made the most compelling cases you'll hear anywhere. I'm Dan Murphy, along with my partner in crime, Tom Smith. How are you today, buddy? I'm doing great today, Dan. Looking forward to an amazing show. I am, too. We have a tremendous, tremendous guest we've been trying to get on for quite some time. Uh, His name is Pete Faselli. We'll tell you more about him in a second. But first, just a little nod to some of our uh, friends who who support this show. First is MyPillow. Mike Lindell has built an amazing product. The MyPillow 2.0 version is out right now. And get it on their website, MyPillow.com, promo code Gold Shields. You will not regret it. You'll have the best night's sleep of your life. And also Fairline Defense. Fairline Defense is a partner and a friend of the show. They are what you need if you carry. You like to carry a weapon. You like to exercise your Second Amendment rights. Have Fairline Defense in your pocket. The best insurance policy, legal coverage, guidance, 24-7 response you'll find anywhere. Tom, how highly would you recommend? I mean, I feel better that I have my Fairline Defense card in my, my pocket right now. Oh, extremely, uh, extremely recommended because you need that that person in your corner. You need that company in your corner when and if that bad event happens. Mm-hmm. You don't want it to happen, but you're carrying a weapon to protect yourself, protect your family. And those uh, situations can arise and you need a professional organization that is built on backing you up and being in on your side when and if that does happen and Fairline does that. Yep. They're, they're great, uh, great integrity. I've known them for years. I wouldn't recommend anyone else for that. Fairlinedefense.com. Be smart if you're going to carry. Well, today uh, we have Pete Faselli on the show, and uh, you can tell us a little bit about him, Tom, quick. I can't wait to get into the show. Uh, he's, I mean, it, it's so impressive that we have him. Uh, we had to bounce some schedules around to get him on. Uh, mm-hmm. We kind of pushed him up a little bit because of the release of his book, which he'll get into. But just his overall career and dedication to this country, both mm-hmm. in the NYPD and in ATF. And his story is going to blow everyone's mind. Uh, eye-opening, pulsating. It's going to be so good. We can't wait. We've been talking about this for a while and uh, we're lucky to have Pete Faselli on the show today. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with our guest, Pete Faselli. And just like that, we're back. It's Dan Murphy with my partner in crime, Tom Smith. And today we are very honored to have with us our guest, Retired former detective NYPD Bronx homicide, former deputy director of the ATF, author of a book that I already already ordered and can't wait to read about his experiences with Fast and Furious. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Gold Shield, Pete Forcelli. Forcelli. We'll make we'll say it the Italian. Well, Forcelli. How do you pronounce it, Pete? I say Forcelli, but Forcelli. I answer to that as well. But yeah, in the old country, it's Forcelli. It's good to be here. Forcelli. Okay. <laughs> Forcelli. Welcome, welcome to Gold Shields, Pete. Thanks. Yep. Pleasure to have you here, man. We, we waited for a while uh, for this. We were looking forward to this for so long. Uh, and then we start writing down notes about your career and, and you end up running out of paper, uh, you know, or going to another page in my notebook. Uh, as impressive as they come, Pete, and we're not just saying that because you're on the show. You know, we, we are fortunate to get guests like you on the show and you're no different. You are truly a dedicated hero in the world of law enforcement, both in the NYPD and in ATF. And we just want to get it out there and just, you know, let's let's hear a little bit about about Pete, 
his upbringing, you know, your, your first shot was in the NYPD and then to the federal uh, agency. So let's start with your upbringing uh, and your road to the NYPD. Sure, sure. I, I was I was raised in Yonkers, not far from the Bronx border. Uh, mostly spent most of my time in, in the Bronx and uh, Yonkers. Um, a lot of time by Bedford Park, which at the time was largely Irish area of um, of the Bronx. So most of my friends growing up were Irish Americans. Um, you know, I always wanted to be a cop. Uh, as a kid, used to watch you know, all the shows, Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, and all that stuff. Always thought it'd be interesting. <laughs> if you watch TV and you see that stuff, it looks very exciting. You learn really quickly when you come on that it's not that. But I took the test, um, test number 4061 back in the day. I was I was yep. in 10th grade when I took the test. Passed it, um, got the call at age 20, went through the academy. Um, what happens was, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be an NYPD cop, right? Everybody did. Yeah. So we all took the same test. So I remember showing up to get sworn in, and uh, I get diverted to the 14th floor of some building. And that's when I found out I was going to be a housing cop. So I started, um, you know, a little disappointed uh, in the end. I actually, of all the things I did in my career, that's the thing I missed the most, believe it or not, walking a beat in the projects. But um, yeah, small organization, good people, um, started foot patrol. You had to earn your way into a car. Eventually got to ride around in the sector car, handle jobs in the projects, handle jobs off project, which the bosses didn't necessarily love because they wanted to get on project property. But some of the best arrests we made um, happened, you know, between one project building and another so, um, yeah, I enjoyed that. Um, did about five years on patrol, went into housing anti-crime, which was fun, worked with some really, really good people, and um, did two years there before uh, I got brought to the detective bureau, um, which I know in NYPD, that's not the normal career path, was from anti-crime straight into the bureau. And it was funny because, you know, got in there, worked with a lot of old timers, salty folks who uh, took the time to, to teach me the job. You know, I think housing detectives pretty good detectives. Um, then the big crash came. We called it, you know, <laughs> hostile takeover. We were merged into the NYPD, um, landed on my feet. I spent a short time in the 4-6 precinct robbery squad. And then a cop got shot up in Co-op City. And the chief of Bronx detectives at the time was the former chief of housing detectives. And he asked me if I'd go up there and work on that case. So I did. So I wound up in the 4-5 squad for a while. And then um, New York, as we know, for years denied there was a gang problem in New York City, right? And then finally they had to admit there was, so they started this big gang initiative. And I got brought into what was the gang investigations unit in the Bronx that was somehow quickly absorbed into Bronx homicide. And it was there that I started working on federal cases, which kind of changed my attitude entirely about the job. Because, look, the Bronx DA's office had a huge caseload, um, as you guys know, and it was this inclination to always opt for a plea bargain. And you felt like your work was like shoveling shit into the tide. I mean, you know, you put people in jail, they'd be out in no time, uh, often with their teeth fixed, you know, big, you know, muscular now because they had time in the gym and they'd come out and reoffend and reoffend. So it was really that time in Bronx homicide working on federal cases that made me think about, you know, jumping ship and doing something different. But by this time, it was kind of a scary, you know, um, thing to think about because I was Closing in on 15 years when I took the ATF test. And as you know, a 20 year pension, it's like, a, you know, then you're starting a whole new job, a uh, different pension system, not as good, uh, to be honest with you, the federal pension system. So, I mean, there was a lot to think about, but, you know, I, I, I love the NYPD. I love the work. I love the people I, I, you know, work with. If anything, they instilled my values in me. So, any of the values I had at ATF, um, 
you know, I learned from housing cops and NYPD cops, which kind of made me a, a good fit in some ways and a bad fit in others. Because I, I was very inclined to speak my mind, which in the federal system, folks aren't necessarily always fond of. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's, that was my NYPD <laughs> career. And it all started because I loved those shows growing up and thought that mm-hmm. that's what the job would be like. So you worked with some great people in Bronx Homicide Squad, many of whom Tom and I know, without going into too many names. I will say that you had the opportunity to work on a phenomenal case there, the sex money murder case. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. Like like you said, I was a housing cop. So, I mean, when I was a newer cop, we would respond to murders and we'd respond to shootings. And you'd always hear these same names, Pistol Pete, Pistol Pete, you know, um, the twins. They were the two, two uh, brothers, uh, David and Damon Mullins. So they were like the founding members of Sex, Money, Murder, which originally started in Soundview Projects, but it had tentacles into like Castle Hill and Bronx River Projects. So they were pretty widespread in the 43rd Precinct. So you would constantly hear these names. So when I went into um, Bronx Homicide, Sean O'Toole was my lieutenant. He came to me, he said, hey, we'd like to start a case on this group, Sex, Money, Murder. And for some reason, he asked me if I, you know, if I would take the case on. And I think it's because I came from, from housing. I'm not sure why he did, but... I was like, sure. So uh, it was funny. Those same names um, that I ran into as a rookie cop uh, were the same folks who were still out there going back to, you know, what we talked about before we went online about how the Bronx DA's office, you know, and prosecutions and Rikers Island was like a, a churning ground for criminals. So these folks had built their criminal networks, you know, during their time in jail and came out and just were, were really vicious folks. So we started looking at um, sex, money, murder. Uh, it was shortly before Thanksgiving of 1997. And then on Thanksgiving Day, um, they had like this ceremonial football game that they played every year in Saudi projects. And by this time, sex, money, murder had kind of splintered off into two different factions. And Peter Rolock was in jail on a drug charge in the Carolinas, in Charlotte, Carolina. And he was pissed off that the twins weren't putting money in his commissary. So he started spreading the word that they were ratting on him, which they were as hardcore as he was. There's no way those folks were ratting. I mean, we know that's, that's happened. But anyway, um, so he ordered a hit on them and they decided to, to try to kill the twins on, um, on that Thanksgiving day of 1997. So what happens is there's this raging gun battle during this football game. Um, part of the plan is to avoid having witnesses. One of the person's roles was to shoot into the crowd to keep people running, which is pretty appalling when you think about it. So in the end, one of the twins was killed. Uh, their bodyguard was killed head on like immediately. One of the other twins was gravely injured but survived, and other people were shot as well. So that pushed the case into like hyperdrive. So we were able to quickly identify who the shooters were. We grabbed them, um, charged them, you know, with um, federal crimes related to racketeering. And um, this is where I got my first taste of something that really changed me as an investigator and something else we talked about before the recording came on, the proffer. Like, you know, the Bronx DA's office, we didn't really proffer anybody. I mean, you know, you get somebody in that interview room with their attorney and you give them the green light to tell you everything that they've ever been involved with, ever, everything they know about, everything they've done. And then you got to go out and, and prove all that stuff. So you're not just taking their word for it at face value. You're going out and corroborating it. But um, to do that, I mean, some of these guys, we proffered 20, 30, perhaps even more than that times per defendant, just to really turn them inside out for all the info they had. Um, and then we just moved forward. And, you know, the, the case took a few years, which, you know, some police departments don't like that because, you know, they prefer instant gratitude. You know, they don't have the, um, it, you know, the time or the resource to do it. But in the end, there were 51 defendants. Um, 
in sex money murder. It came in three different waves. The first wave was jo- worked jointly with ATF and DEA. The second w- and third waves were um, worked with FBI. And uh, Peter Rolock, who was the founding member of sex money murder in the end, pled guilty because they were going to seek the death penalty. So I think it was January of 2001, he pled guilty and was sentenced to life plus 105 years in solitary confinement. And it's funny because his cell, we were told, was between uh, Robert Hansen and the blind shake. Yeah. He was <laughs> seated. So that case took a few years. Rewarding. My first real taste of, um, you know, doing federal RICO cases. But there was another byproduct of that that happened, too. The ATF agent that I worked with was a guy named Rob Berger. He was a really good dude, and he had a seat in the Southern District. And um, we we hit it off really good. And sex money murder started originally. The first charges we we um, laid on any of the members was um, being a felon in possession of a firearm. We called it a, a trigger lock arrest. So one night we were talking about sex money murder. Liz Glazer was there. She was the chief of the violent crimes unit at the time. Chief Al Matarasso was there, and um, we threw something out as kind of a scam. It's like, because I like working with this ATF agent, you know, as when the RICO case ends, how do you keep that relationship going? And it was like, why don't we just keep doing these trigger locks? Why don't we just go out there and strategically look for gun cases in the Bronx? Because the Bronx was given ATF cases. That some of it was ridiculous. Like guy with a 25-year-old grand larceny of, uh, of an auto conviction. Like how's, how's that protecting the public or, or you know, an old- right. yeah. So what we did is we, we'd look through the open gun arrests and see who can we strategically target to bring in on uh, 922G, which is felon possession, and flip them and work racketeering cases. And um, so that's how Operation Trigger Lock was born. It was born at Two Tom's Restaurant at, at a dinner with <laughs> Liz Glazer, Sean O'Toole, myself, Rob Berger, and, uh, and Al Matarasso. And uh, so the program in year one, we we locked up 13 people and flipped a few. And we had like the Bryant, Bryant Avenue boys, Rico Case came out of that. Um, by the time I left in 2001, well, I don't know what their end year total was in 2001. In 2000, we had arrested 74 um, 922G cases. And um, some really big cases came out of those because going back, we said you're proffering somebody, you're learning about all the things they did. And the other thing that came out of proffers, you know, not not immediately came later in my ATF career is we'd look at some cases and, you know, people are talking about the murders they were involved in. And we pulled a few files and you're like, ooh, there's a problem here. Someone's been charged with it. You know, so you're going now and you're going to follow that evidence. And and we wound up getting eight innocent people out of prison based on proffers that happened where we were able to corroborate, you know, who actually committed the murder. And um, so, you know. That's why I think proffers and in talking to people is just such an important gift for a cop or a detective just to, you know, follow the, follow the evidence. You know, so that was, you know, I, that was an unexpected benefit of, of the proffers, you know? You know, it's amazing. And for those who are on this call, who on this, I'm sure I listen to the show or watch the show, who don't know what we're talking about with proffer sessions and federal cases. This is the use of the federal RICO, Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, which is um, a sweeping federal law that allows for um, a slightly different approach towards criminal organizations. For example, you bring somebody in on a federal case and you do it a proffer, it's called a queen for a day, bring them in with their attorney, give them an opportunity to come clean and cooperate with the government. We used to call it join Team USA. You get a chance to tell us, but you have to tell us everything you know, everything you've ever done, seen, heard of, everything you know about crime. And as Pete said, that can take a lot of sit downs with these people because career criminals are just that. They have a career 
of crime. And gang members, that's all they do. So you'll sit down and you'll listen for days and days and days to these people. And then you have to go out and find the cases, corroborate what they say. But when you do that, this person, at the end of the day, if they've been honest with the government and cooperated fully, the only opportunity they get, if it's a RICO charge, now RICO means the rest of your life in a small cell. There's no parole. You're done. Uh, RICO with violence, forget it. You're done. And at that point, the only way you have any chance of getting out is cooperating and getting what's called a 5K1 letter written by the U.S. attorney. Actually, the attorney general of the United States writes it and sends it to the um, to the judge presiding over that case. It is the only thing that allows that judge legally to deviate from the federal mandatory reporting guidelines. So they can give you anything they want. And many a really hardened bad guys walked out the door after six months, a year, two years, because they gave up their whole crew. They and as Pete said, I, I sat in a proffer one time. A guy gave up a homicide that other people had been arrested for, and it blew our minds. We had no idea he was involved in it, no clue. And it was a press case. It was a big press case, front page. And we're like, oh, okay. Now you got to play poker face and act like you knew it. But what you're able to do for a community is you never have to bring people in from that community to testify in the courtroom, which is what gets people killed and what makes cases fall apart in state court is because the community is not coming in and testifying against the bad guy that runs the gang in the neighborhood. They're never going to make it to the courtroom. They're going to get killed on the way or on the way home. So this law is so powerful. And if law enforcement members listening to this aren't using it to clean up any sort of organized criminal activity in your area, you're missing an opportunity. And uh, I was lucky enough, Tom was lucky enough, Pete, you to have been in positions to just learn how powerful and how impactful that law can be when done right. Yeah. Well, I'll say this. I was a very happy homicide detective. I thought I'd reached the apex of my career. You know, I mean, you watch TV. What are all the shows about? New York City police homicide detectives. Right. Um, I was so profoundly impacted by what we were able to accomplish with proffers that that's really what caused me to leave the NYPD. I didn't leave because I hated the job. I didn't have enemies on the job. I was a happy detective. But I didn't feel as effective um, as I could have been had I left and gone to ATF. And I started with ATF in New York, and which, you know, uh, and I worked pretty much the same kind of cases. So, I mean, the proffers were great. You know, and look, there was another benefit to a proffer too. And that's, you know, this person told you everything they knew, everything they were involved in. It made it hard for the defense to, um, to impeach them because it's, you know, and that's why you really need to turn these folks because the bad guys who they were talking about knew them too. You know, so, I mean, if they didn't tell you about something, it would blow up in their face. And I did have one defendant that, that happened. Uh, this guy, his name was Dwayne Beatty. It was a, a, a case that I worked as an ATF agent um, in the building right across the street from the New York State Division of Parole in the Bronx. There was a building that kind of been taken over by these guys, mostly a senior citizen building, kind of like that movie. I forgot the name of it. New Jack City or something. Um So they, these guys took over the building, were selling a lot of drugs out of the building. And one guy came in. We had, we had him pretty dead to rights on a home invasion of a marijuana dealer where it turned into a murder. So we were going to charge him with a Hobbs Act murder. And um, so what happened was um, he came in and gave us about 80% of what he was involved in and decided to hold back one thing. So other defendants come in. What are they doing? They're proffering. And a couple of them are like, hey, that guy, Dwayne, uh, you know, he was he was looking to kill some of the witnesses in the in the initial case. Well, Dwayne never told us that. So um, his cooperation agreement got ripped up because if you lie, right? So Dwayne got sentenced to two life sentences because and he could have got out if he just told us that extra bit of information. So 
So, I mean, it's really, you're making a deal with the devil in these proffers. Um, and it could benefit the bad guy if they're completely honest and they testify, or even if they don't testify and, you know, they, they stick with the truth. When you hold back, man, the, the, the justice system's going to come and crush you. And that's what they did to Beatty. And he deserved it. So he got the double life sentence. Right. And it was such a great tool to have because it didn't matter your level of criminality in the street. And if you were a part of an organization, everyone knew what Rico was. Right. Everyone knew it. And if you grabbed them and had it in your pocket and got them in a room and mentioned that word, all bets were off. They would throw up on themselves, giving up everyone they could because they knew the alternative was uh, Supermax. They knew. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that was up. just a great tool to have. Yeah, throwing up is, is not an understatement either. We had one defendant. He was involved in a bunch of murders. <laughs> and he thought we were full of shit. Because this is before I, I went over to, um, to ATF. Because we were NYPD detectives locking him up. So he's thinking he's going back to Rikers Island. He thinks that we're bluffing. So we drive past the Bronx Criminal Courthouse. And we we make our way over to the FDR Drive. And we're driving down the FDR Drive. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, man, like, you passed the courthouse. Like, hey, we told you, dude. This is federal. <laughs> you guys at NYPD going, oh. This is a federal beef. Um, yep. This was in the sex money murder case. The guy's name was Rafino Turner. He starts vomiting all over the back <laughs> of the car because he started shitting his pants, realizing, hey, man, this is real. This isn't yep. you know, the normal revolving door justice that you've been used to for your entire life. You're going to go away for a long time. So he was right, throwing yeah. his brains up out, you know, inside the car and out the back window once we decided to crack the window and hold on to his belt so he didn't go head first out <laughs> trying to escape. Yeah. And then the difference, uh, the, I love the difference in the buildings. Like the Bronx, Bronx, Bronx Criminal Court is just a regular building, you know, a, a kind of door to walk in. You go down to federal court, marble, you know, <laughs> big gold entrances, <laughs> gates, yeah, yeah. U.S. Marshals. That visual uh, was always impactful. And then it was great just watching them in the rearview mirror sitting in the backseat once you got near the, the federal courthouse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't forget Bronx Court. You also had the the, the, the mopes in the in the uh, galley arguing with the court officers because they didn't want to take off their hat or they wanted to put their feet up. <laughs> so you had those arguments like in the middle of like proceeding. So yeah, it was definitely a different environment. Yeah, I, I remember one time I had to pick up a guy up at Otisville. Uh, simple thing, and I went up there and he he was getting released and I wanted to talk to him and uh, he had done nine years and he was out way out west, and he looked at me. And he just started crying. And I go, what's wrong? He goes, you don't understand. You're the closest thing to home I've seen in nine years. <laughs> he goes, they sent me. I don't even know where I was in Utah or something. I had no family, no friends. Nobody spoke my language. It, be, because when you're in a federal system, literally, they can put you in Alaska if they want to. Yeah. They can make you as hard as, as it is possible for your family to see you. You're never going to say, I mean, it's all up to you. Um, cooperate or you get thrown in the pot, and uh, yeah, it's pretty funny. So you decided to uh, to leave the splendor of the of the NYPD in the Bronx for for the brighter pastures of the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a great job. I was kind of doing the same work. I'll admit, you know, I mean, I, and it's funny because I had an office in the Southern District of New York um, from doing the trigger lock cases. So when I started with ATF, I was brand new. Back then, they gave you your badge and gun day one if you were prior law enforcement. It was no going to the academy first. And then you went to the academy when you know they had an opening for you. So I had a, a case. I, was, I actually started proffering a guy when I was in Bronx Homicide who was a um, – his name had kept coming up in home invasion robberies. 
So he got caught with a gun. So we trigger locked him, charged him with being a fugitive in possession of a firearm because he wasn't a felon, but he was a fugitive. He had a warrant in South Carolina. Um, same thing. We told him, you know, we're, we're charging you federally. You can cooperate or not. He basically told us, go fuck yourself. You know, man, uh, I've been in the system. I know how it goes. So, he, you know, he, he thought we were bluffing because he had never been charged federally before. He was a Dominican kid. So um, I told him, he said, look, all right, you know, no disrespect. I don't care. You don't want to talk to me. That doesn't affect my life at all. So here's what's going to happen. I said, you're going to see a judge, right? You're going to probably be held. While you're held, I'm going to go show your photograph to some folks who have reported robberies that you may or may not have been involved in. And if you get picked out, we're going to supersede. So anyway, by the time his 30-day um, uh, conference came up, right, um, we had two photo array hits. So now we got robberies. And the way it works federally for the first robbery, it's five-year mandatory minimum for the gun. The second robbery is 25 years mandatory minimum, Right. So he's looking at 30 years just in 924C charges, which is the gun charge. And that's after he would do his time for the robbery. So now we tell him, you know, what, what's going on. His lawyer knows what's going on. So he comes in and he decides he wants to proffer. So the first proffer, he came in with a loose leaf paper, homemade Excel spreadsheet of 87 robberies that he had been involved in, what they stole, who was with him who had guns, where they discussed the plans for the robbery. And the challenge was a lot of it was nicknames. And a lot of it was Dominican nicknames like El Buey, El, El Gallo. So you're like, yeah, okay. yeah. But, but anyway, so first thing we told them is don't do this anymore because now that he wrote these documents, they become discoverable documents. So no more spreadsheets um, on loose leaf paper. Everything is going to be discussed. So by the time we finished proffering him, the um, – the number went up to about 115 home invasions. And then some of them weren't home invasions. Some of them were commercial robberies. Some of them were uh, burglaries, but they were intended to be home invasions. So they'd kick in the door thinking they were going to rob the place and no one would be home. So it would turn into a burglary. But it's still under federal law. It's a conspiracy to commit a home invasion robbery, right? Um, so we we arrest the, the, the two defendants that he did the most of those home invasions with because it wasn't like the same crew all the time. Like today it could be us three. Tomorrow, I'm bringing another friend. Then one day, I'm not available. So you two and my new friend go do it. So by the time it was done, we had 16 defendants, 145 robberies, and um, six murders, some kidnapping, some firearms trafficking. Um, and then one of the people they proffered on that was involved in one of those murders turned out to be a cop um, in Bennington, Vermont, who, you know, he did these things, left New York. Um, got a job as a cop in Vermont. No one knew that about the. So then we eventually grab him, proffer him. He proffers to five murders he committed. So I mean, it was so that was the first case I worked as an ETF agent. It was actually something that started as a proffer from the and you know my NYPD days. And it was weird because my boss, you know, I'm a brand new agent. And when I pitched the case to him, I'm like, you know, I don't think this guy's gonna let me work. It. I'm a rookie agent. He was an old salty ATF um, group supervisor. His name was Jerry Raffi. He said, Pete, let's do it. All right. So I spent my first three years as an ATF agent working a case that I kind of stole from Bronx Homicide. But yeah, it was great. And then um, then I had a couple other RICO cases that I did. That wasn't a RICO case, but it was charged as a continuing criminal enterprise. Not a right. CCE. Um, so, but yeah, it was great. But, you know, I was there for 9-11. I, I, that was three months into my time when ATF 9-11 happened. And, you were um, right on Church Street, right? You had yeah. your offices right on Church Street? Well, yeah. we, mm -hmm. we, we had offices at Church Street, but by that time they had moved into Six World Trade. 
Oh, got it. So, okay. you know, mm-hmm. I was there that day. I was on the pile. Um, you know, I, I talk about that at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. I do a presentation there, but I got, I got fucked up after that. You know, I later wound up getting cancer of my lung. They took out the lung. I'm fine now. Thank God. My wife gave me bronchitis, not a single symptom. I would have never knew I had it. Um, but they caught it in time. Um, so, you know, taking out the oh, lung, God. took out all the cancer, but driving Ooh. past ground zero and all that shit, um, for years after 9-11, um, it, Got old, like I was dealing with some issues, man. And just like not sleeping since nine eleven. Still haven't had a good night's sleep since then. So it got to like as much as I love being an agent in New York. The only way out of New York was to promote. So I, in two thousand six, I took the ATF. Um, it was called the Assessment Center. Like it's not a written test. You have to sit there and play boss for a day in front of assessors, and they decide how you do. And I did well. So um, you know, I, I, I put in to start promoting, and I put in for um, Jacksonville, Savannah. Phoenix and Dallas figured I'd go somewhere warm and get out of <laughs> super expensive and heavily taxed New York. So I wound up of all the places I wound up going to Phoenix. And that's where, so that's where I spent my first supervisory time was as a group supervisor in Phoenix. And it's funny because I, I left New York to get away from the stress of driving past ground zero every day. And it, man, it was like jumping from the friggin' frying pan directly into the blazing hot fire. Cause that's, that's, you know, Fast and Furious obviously happened shortly after I got there. But what a shit show Phoenix was um, for a new supervisor. Just I mean, there was a lot of dysfunction there even before Fast and Furious happened. So, which is why, candidly, why I wrote that book. There was a Fast and Furious took off, right? Um, and complete disaster of an operation. But the uh, the runway that allowed for that takeoff was paved by some federal prosecutors who were in Arizona and just making horrifically bad decisions coupled with some really inexperienced leaders at um, at the senior levels of ATF out there. So, yeah. Now, Pete, I think I, I think a lot of our listeners are, are going to know the name Fast and Furious and what happened, Operation Fast and Furious. For those who don't, you know, new listeners and new watchers to our show, what was the premise of the operation? What was What was the goal? What was the idea of that operation? Well, Fast and Furious wasn't like a program. Like the weird thing about this whole story about Fast and Furious is if you follow the news, you either heard the Republican version, which was Eric Holder and Obama were trying to inflict pain on, you know, the gun um, world. And they had this big plan. And then if you listen to the Democrats, it was like, oh, that's bullshit. They started under George Bush. This was wide receiver. This is one big program. It's been running. That, that's not true. They were all separate cases. I mean, disastrous cases when you look back on it and they're going, going back to inexperienced leadership. Like wide receiver happened before I even showed up in Phoenix. That case involved about 150 guns. Um, Fast and Furious was a, a case that started in, I think, around 2010. Um, and well, to, to really talk about it, I got to go back, though, because, you know, Fast and Furious didn't happen in a vacuum. Right. When I first got to Phoenix, um, I had never worked a case involving firearms trafficking from the state. You know, I mean, in New York, the guns are coming from other states. In Arizona, you know, guns go from Arizona to Mexico to California. So, you know, my plan was to rely very heavily on my agents because they'd been there. They know, you know, I'm, I'm a new supervisor. This is a new lane. I did gang cases. I did RICO cases. I never really worked firearms trafficking cases. So I remember my first weekend out there, I, um, I get a call from one of my agents, a gun dealer, a licensed gun dealer, called him and said, hey, man, this suspicious transaction happening here. Are you guys around? And this happened all the time. I mean, we would get calls all the fucking time from gun dealers. 
Because, you know, everybody likes to, to demonize them on the left. Oh, these, you know, shady characters. They'll sell you one gun over the table, three, four under the table. No, these are legitimate business folks. And, and they were our bread and butter, man. So 90% of the tips that we got out there came from licensed gun dealers, whether it was a tip about a gun smuggler, whether it was a tip about a felon trying to get a gun, whether it was a tip about an unlicensed dealer. Um, they were great. So, but this one call, um, my first weekend out there, is a guy comes into a gun shop and asks for all the AK-47 knockoffs the guy has on the shelf. So they're not the fully automatic assault rifles. They're they're semi-automatic rifles, you know? And um, so there's 13 of them. So we get out there and um, he finishes the paperwork once he knows we're outside. We watch the person get out, throws these 13 AK knockoffs into a, a U-Haul. We follow them because we're not going to stop them right there in the parking lot because we don't want to burn the gun dealer. Because, I mean, these guys are dealing with cartel folks. You know, if they know the gun dealers are talking, us, they're going to get killed. So we follow them. The guy gets on the I-10, starts heading south. We decide we're going to stop him. And our story would always be, hey, man, we were surveilling the gun shop. We saw you put 13 AKs in the truck. You know, what was it about? But we don't go right there. You, you guys know the drill. We stop them. Hey, where are you coming from? One guy said, oh, I was at my mother's. The other guy said, oh, no, no, we were playing soccer. So you got them in different stories. You, you escalate that into, you know, getting um, eyes on the guns. So we seize the guns. We call the U.S. Attorney's Office from the scene. And um, I'm told, hey, man, the U.S. Attorney's Office says that, that you know, they'll probably take it. Just, um, you know, we got to let these guys go. And it, they'll they'll let us know and they'll, you know, indict it in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. So for me, that was like, a difficult thing because from my time in New York, if you pull over a van with 13 AK-47s, you call the U.S. Attorney's Office, they say, all right, tough them, take them, and they would draw up a complaint. In Arizona, the trend, I was told, was let them go and pick them up later. And I had a philosophically I had a problem with that because here you got guys with guns who are going south, right? Um, we have them in custody. So going back to go after guys that you caught with guns means putting your agents in harm's way again to go arrest them because they may have guns again. They may know you're coming. So anyway, um, kind of shocked that we were told to let them go and that we'll consider it later. So, you know, I start looking at our cases and what I'm noticing is those, hey, we'll indict it later. That's that's more often than not not happening. So you have these firearms traffickers who are getting a pass because the U.S. Attorney's Office is either sitting on them. So I had, we had 448 open cases when I first got to Phoenix, which is mind blowing. So as I'm sorting through them, we had a bunch of cases that were waiting decisions from the U.S. Attorney's Office when the statute of limitation expired, right? So you couldn't charge them, kind of like what's going on in Wilmington, Delaware right now, right? But anyway, the um, so that pissed me off. So now I have a conversation with my agents. I'm like, hey, man, we can't just give these cases to the U.S. Attorney's Office and then wait for them to make a decision. You need to go there and sell your case and have conversations. But that kind of fell on deaf ears with the U.S. Attorney's Office because the same thing was going on, decline, decline, decline. So anyway, not too much longer after that, we had a case where a um, what happens when guns get traced, right? They get traced back to the dealer. And then we follow up and, you know, to decide because some of the guns that get traced, you know, they, they're not sold by uh, traffickers. They're taken in burglaries, whatever. So we, we get word of a gun that had been used in a shooting in Mexico in a town called Cananeo, which is 40 miles south of the border, where 20, 21 or 24 people are killed, but four of them were cops, right? The gun had been purchased two days earlier, which, I mean, for ATF agents, a two-year time to crime, which means it was sold 
this day. If it's recovered within two years, that's an indicator that the gun was trafficked. A two-day time to crime is is unheard of. So, you know, we, uh, my agent, Mario, he uh, and Billy, they interview the straw purchaser. He confesses. They interview the trafficker. He confesses. Um, and then they present it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And the U.S. Attorney's Office changes course on how they've been doing business, too. It's like, well, the gun is in Mexico, so the body of the crime is in Mexico. We're declining the case. So you got four dead cops amongst, you know, dozens of other people killed. And four other cops in that incident were brought into the desert and tortured and left for dead. Again, Mexican cops. I guess that didn't matter to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So they came with this policy from that point forward um, that if the gun is in Mexico, the body of the crime is in Mexico, the case is declined. Well, the, the crime is lying on the form. We had the form in hand. So that that became a big problem for us because, you know, a lot of the cases, the traffickers would take the guns to Mexico. We didn't know about it till the guns were traced. But, we, you know, going back to the dealers, the dealers called us every time they saw a suspicious transaction. A couple things would happen. One is we would set up outside. Um, immediately, if there were enough of us available. And the second those guns left, we would stop the car, ask the questions, make the arrest. If if we weren't available, the dealers would often, like, you know, they would lie to the trafficker and say, hey, you didn't pass Nick's, come back tomorrow or come back in a couple of days so that we could be there to do that same thing, interdiction. Um, then, and there were other instances where none of us were around, period, they would just deny the sale. But never did they intentionally let guns get trafficked, the dealers, I'm talking about. So um, this this was like a common theme, happened all the time. My group seized in the three years that I was in charge of the Mexico-bound firearms trafficking, we seized so many guns that we actually had to get a variation from ATF policy to, because um, our vault was literally full, full, overflowing with guns. So we had a Connex box that we had to rent and secure. That thing became full. We had to then get a third Connex box, which became full of guns. Unheard of. I mean, that's how many guns we were seizing. But no one was going to jail. Like 90% of the defendants that we we uh, requested that the U.S. Attorney's Office charge, um, they weren't charging. So, I mean, some of them we would be able to take to the county if there was a county violation. So, anyway, long story, you know, to make it even more painful, we had a couple of cases that were um, really high profile. And one of them was a, a young kid who was buying 50 caliber Barrett rifles for the Juarez cartel. So we identify his network. We present that case to the U.S. Attorney's Office. One of the guns was used to kill a Mexican police commander in the daycare center. So we figured this is high profile. It made news. The U.S. Attorney's Office wanted I'm reminded, hey, Pete, our policy is corpus delicti. The gun is in Mexico. There's no case here. So I'm frustrated. And at this point, it came to this decision, like, why not just reach out to the Arizona Attorney General's office and see if they'll work with us? Because a lot of these buyers would go to gun stores in different counties, amass a bunch of guns, and then trickle them into Mexico. So the counties, uh, the county prosecutors didn't like second bites at an apple that the U.S. attorney declined. Like, you know, why do we have to do their job? And then in some of the bigger cases, you know, you had different counties involved. So how do you split it up? So at least the Arizona Attorney General's office would have jurisdiction over the entire the entire state and you know the border to some degree. So I call them and said, "Hey man, would you folks be willing to take our cases?" And they're like, "Well, we don't have a gun unit." And I'm like, oh. "So um, they're like, well, you know, come in, let's have a conversation." So we have a conversation and um, that you know tell them exactly what we're looking at. So he, the, their focus was you know financial crime fraud. 
not violent crime or guns at that time. So I'm like, all right, you know, hey, thanks for hearing me out. I figured I'd wasted my time. And they're like, no, no, let's let's do these cases. I'm like, all right, well, when can we start? Now, so we we wound up charging the smuggler of the 50 caliber rifles through the Arizona Attorney General's office. That was like our first test case. It made international news. And then listen to this. Um, Maine Justice gets pissed and they call and say, what? How come you guys didn't take this to the, to the U.S. Attorney's office? Like we did. Right. So we came up with this strategy that we, we you know, we had some other cases that were high profile that were in international headlines. Like, all right, let's embarrass the U.S. Attorney's office to doing their job. So we gave a media interview on the 50 caliber case. Um, we thought that would you know, kind of break the ice. Well, anyway, not too far after that, we got a case was the first and only case that we ever worked that involved a licensed gun dealer who was directly selling to cartel folks. He was coaching them on how to hide the guns, what to say if they got pulled over. So we pitched that case to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They declined that as well. This is after the embarrassment of them not taking the 50 caliber case. So basically what I'm saying is, you know, we seized guns like it was going out of style, never from legitimate citizens. I mean, there were times where we'd, we'd see a transaction where a guy would be selling a gun to somebody who we were tailing, and we would stop them in the parking lot and we would ask them, hey, man, like, what are you doing? You just sold to a guy who's here picking up guns for the cartel. He'd be like, well, I had an, an ad out on Craigslist and the guy showed up. So this person's not violating the law and selling a personally owned firearm to someone in Arizona. That's not illegal. So we never hassled those folks. We got their name. Hey, this, this person will be a great witness if this ever goes to trial. And we would send them on their way because it's not illegal in Arizona to sell your personally owned firearm. But anyway, so what I'm getting at is for for those years, we seized guns. There was only one time in my time in Arizona where we did not seize a gun that we believed was being um, straw purchased to go to Mexico. And I'll give you the story, and then I'll tell you about Fast and Furious, why it's all fucked up. Um, we watched the transaction happen. We were following the car, and then the driver, now we suspected it was a straw purchase. The driver is the only person that did this, decides he's going to nail it, right? So he's, he's you know, pedal to the metal. Um, we call in the locals and, you know, they're trying to help us. This guy is driving like such a lunatic. School buses are out and I had to make a decision. Like, look, we know who he is. He filled out the form. We're not chasing this guy and killing some fucking kid in a car accident. Right. Um, I know he's driving like a lunatic and he's going to hurt somebody. But I suspect he's a straw purchaser. So let's just work that case the old fashioned way. Chase the paper, which is how a lot of the other groups did it. They, they didn't believe in stopping cars, which I think was asinine. Um, so let's go forward to Fast and Furious. The agent who was the case agent on Operation Fast and Furious, which, by the way, the real name of that case is Jacob Chambers et al. and others. Um, you know, she was one of the agents in Phoenix that was averse to doing car stops. She didn't think it was our job. I disagreed. We stopped cars. I wasn't calling a local cop unless I had to, to put them in harm's way to do my job. Um, the group she was in, that's that's how they did business. I don't like it. Um, so anyway, they stumble into this guy, Jacob Chambers, and some other people. And these folks are out there driving these little hot rods, similar to the cars in Fast and Furious, little Japanese souped up cars. That's how the nickname Operation Fast and Furious came about was because of the cars they drove. So I was not involved in that case at all, at all. Had nothing to do with it. But I would sit at the supervisor's meetings. And I remember the first meeting we would have every Monday, the first meeting where Fast and Furious came up, I was told that they had identified a network and that they had 600 guns you know, attributed to them. So I thought, like 
pretty much everybody else thought that they had gone through like a dealer's books and found suspicious transactions that had happened in the past. And, you know, because that happens sometimes, you'll find out after the fact. And that, um, you know, that they would start investigating these people, go out and interview the straw purchasers like the, like that we normally did. Um, so I didn't pay much mind. I'm just, wow, that sounds like a pretty interesting case, that many guns. So at a, another meeting, the numbers are going up, like 900. So at this point, I start like asking questions um, to the other bosses that are there, and especially in charge of the Phoenix Field Division chairs these meetings. Nice guy, Bill Knowles, like six foot nine, about 115 pounds, always wore a crisp, crisp white uh, dress shirt, very polished. Very, very inexperienced. When, when he told me about his career, I almost fell out of my chair. He spent like three years in the field as, as both an agent and a supervisor, and now he's running a field division. So um, now the numbers are going up, like I said, like 900. So I asked, I said, hey, man, are you guys like going to go out and interview these straw buyers? Like, what the fuck? And they're like, oh, no, no, Pete, relax. It's George Gillette, the ASAC. We're doing something different. So I'm thinking they got something going on. At no point am I thinking they're watching these guns right off you know, to the horizon. So with subsequent meetings, you hear 1,200 guns. And now me and some of the other folks are getting a little bit more boisterous. Like, hey, man, like, what the fuck is going on? So we're told, oh, they're on a wiretap. We're doing something different. It's groundbreaking. We're the only people in the country doing it. So I'm figuring there's some kind of, there's, there's an end to a mean here. But I never in a million years thought that these numbers were coming back to gun traces in Mexico. I figured there's some sort of operation going. It's none of my business. They didn't work in the same building as us. So um, whatever, you know, I mean, so anyway, fast forward, um, Brian Terry gets killed, border patrol agent. And I hear that one of the guns from that case traced back to Operation Fast and Furious. So my thoughts still at this point are like, all right, well, this gun historical got traced back to Brian Terry's killing. Um, but people are now getting a little bit more and more pissed off about what's happening with, um, you know, Fast and Furious and the numbers going up and how come no one's telling us what they're doing. So anyway, one of the agents in that group, which, again, did not sit in our building. They were at an offsite. Um, and it was a group that was formed mostly of people that didn't come from Phoenix. Hope McAllister was the case agent. She was the only person from Phoenix in that group at that time. The rest were newer folks or folks had come from other parts of the country. So John Dodson was one of those agents. He was actually uh, from this area of the country, from Northern Virginia. Um, he blows the whistle on Fast and Furious because he knows what's going on. So at another meeting, right, they're talking about Fast and Furious and Bill Newell, special agent in charge, tells us that the U.S. Attorney's Office was really pissed at John Dodson for speaking to Rasley's folks. And there's rumblings they may indict him. So here I am saying these mother. Right. Part of my language. I hope that's not inappropriate for this. For this, um, But my blood pressure went up because like, I presented cases to them, dozens and dozens and dozens of cases to them involving firearms traffickers bringing guns to Mexico. And it was always an excuse why we can't prosecute these cases. And now they're going to indict an ATF agent who I thought they were going to indict him for blowing the whistle on Fast and Furious. I'm like, how dare they? I went home that night. Um, not happy. Me and my wife, we have a great marriage. Um, be open about things. So she knew I was happy as soon as I got in. So I, I told her, I said, this is this is what they're thinking of doing. So she's like, well, that's bullshit. I said, you know, I think I should probably call Grassley's office myself and tell him that he's not lying. But that's what I did. The following morning, I woke up and I said, look, my, my name's Pete Fuselli. I spoke to a guy named Brian Downey. I said, um, I'm a supervisor in Phoenix. I'm not involved in that case. But um, 
I know that ATF and Eric Holder and company are all saying that um, that whistleblower is lying. He's not lying. And if you give me a subpoena, I'll t- tell you everything that you want to know. And that's kind of the beginning of how I got involved in Operation Fast and Furious. But here's, here's something. You know that one of those straw purchasers bought over 800 firearms and the U.S. Attorney's Office was still reluctant to charge him. It took, they eventually did, 800 guns on one person that they knew, right? And they were not charging the guy right away. We always kicked the can. We'll indict it later. We'll indict it later. So, I mean, you know, look, ATF got its nose broken and its jaw busted for Fast and Furious. But a lot of these lawyers that were directly involved in it dodged the bullet entirely. And they're still sitting, in, you know, where they were, which is, to me, you know, the service to the taxpayer, to say the least. So you testified before Congress. Um, I've seen that video. And it takes a lot of guts, right? I mean, you're, you're, not, um, you're not naturally inclined to shed the light on how things are done in law enforcement all the time because you want to make sure you keep some semblance of secrecy to tactics and tools and methods and all that other stuff. But this was just flat out wrong. I mean, you had to come forward. And for that, you have a lot of integrity, and, and we respect you immensely. Um, what happened uh, when you testified? Um, tell us about that, and what was the repercussions afterwards, if any? Oh, it's ugly. You know, first thing, before it was a, the testimony that you saw, it was a deposition, right? And at the deposition, you had Senator Leahy's staff, Senator Grassley's staff. You had Elijah Cummings' staff and Daryl Issa's staff. Because Daryl Issa was the chairman of oversight, so he had subpoena power. Grassley, who everybody went to, was the ranking member, no subpoena power. So I told them everything I knew, and which involved that there was another thing we discussed which was a guy who was smuggling grenades, which in my opinion is a case that it never, it's in the book, man. And I don't want to give too much of it up, but it never really made too much news because it was killed because it made the administration look pretty bad. Um, but it was hundreds and hundreds of grenades being made for the Sinaloa cartel that we had this guy dead to rights and the U.S. Attorney's Office kept kicking the can, kicking the can. But anyway, um, so a couple things happened. One is I got deposed and it was about probably seven hour deposition. And I put everything out on the table, man, everything. I wasn't holding anything back because to me, it was appalling. Like this was endangering the public on steroids, right? And a lot of it was decisions made by lawyers, not by agents. And look, some of it, here's the thing, like I can't put it all on the attorneys because when we were declined cases by the U.S. Attorney's Office, we still stopped the cars. We still seized the guns. No cop was going to get killed with one of those guns. No kid was going to get killed. No one ever came back to get the guns. They, they were contraband. It wasn't like we were taking guns from law-abiding citizens. So they could have did that. Like, there was no excuse to say, well, we'll just let the case go. Let the case go. Let's write down the license plate. Don't stop the car. I mean, it's idiocy. But um, So I'm not defending ATF at all, but I'm just blaming the, the right folks here. You know, some folks dodged accountability. So, but anyway, I get deposed. Nerve-wracking, because I'm not sure if I'm going to keep my job or not at this point. I walk back to my office. By the time I got back to my office, which was a six-block walk, I get a phone call from an AUSA, because they weren't all assholes. There were some good people in that, in that office that wanted to do their job. Office policies didn't allow them to do their job. And they tell me, Pete, everything that you said in that room was related to the U.S. attorney. So I'm like, oh, fuck. Right? So then um, the following day, I get um, notified by another AUSA who's a good person saying, I can't name them because if they're still there, you know, I don't want to put them in a basement, saying, hey, Pete, the U.S. attorney sent out an email. I'm going to I'm gonna 
print a copy and I need to come see you. So I'm sitting there and he sent out, a, and I'm having this conversation with the AUSA over a cup of coffee in the morning, basically said from the U.S. attorney himself, presidentially appointed, anyone having contact or seeing Pete Fraselli, even if it's on the weekend, having coffee with his family is to report it to me through their chain of command immediately. So I'm like, fuck, I'm a marked man here in Arizona, right? Like, you know, and you know how it goes, man. Like, I, if I ever get on the witness stand and say I saw a white car and it turns out it was like off-white, you know, I mean, what are they going to do to come after me? Um, then there was a point where actually before I testified in front of the committee, uh, I was tailed, you know, for a couple of days. I'm like, well, who's this? Is this the FBI? Is it U.S. attorney? Is it the media? So it, it, it got ugly. But anyway, so I fast forward to the, the, the hearing. There was a case that we were working involving that guy I spoke of briefly who was making the grenades for the cartel. We begged the U.S. Attorney's Office to let us charge him. Now, the issue is he wasn't making the grenades in the U.S. And having an inert grenade is not a crime, right? It's it's not illegal. Um, anywhere, having the um, the parts for a grenade, same thing. Taking those things into another country, though, violates the Arms Export Control Act, even though they're inert, right? So we knew this. We, we knew this guy was taking these gun parts into Mexico and uh, we wanted to charge him. And we were told, no, it has no jury appeal. Hey, Pete, he can just say he's making those, I'm quoting, those hilarious complaint department, take a number of grenades. So they keep kicking the can, kicking the can. Well, anyway, um, this guy eventually gets caught crossing the border with 114 disassembled grenades hidden in his car, in his tire, hidden in the tires. They shut down the port. And a bomb squad has to come and render the car safe. So now we, we have this guy in custody. He confesses to us. Yeah, I've made about 800 or so grenades for the Sinaloa cartel. You know, I turned the AR-15s that get smuggled into Mexico into machine guns. He ran a school teaching other people how to do it. Um, so we figured we're good to go. They declined the case. So anyway, on the eve of my testimony, I get a phone call. And we had emails to correspond to like some of these things. On the eve of my testimony, I get a call from a supervisor at the U.S. Attorney's Office saying, hey, Pete, um, our office's, poli- our office's um, position is, and when they said our office's position is, you knew, here comes the, you know what, unlubed. So anyway, um, the eve of my testimony, I'm in a hotel and I get a call from um, a good guy. Uh, I, I respect him. Uh, he was the, the messenger. He wasn't the guy, you know, who came up with this. They're like, our office's policy is that we never allowed um, Kingery to, to leave the country with grenades. So in other words, like ATF allowed it. And I'm like, you mother. But thank God I had emails that I had because they saved my ass in the long run. So basically they were, what they were doing is they were trying to turn some of the things that we did into smears, which, um, and then on the day of my testimony, the chief of the criminal division for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona was in ATF headquarters telling the director, the deputy director, and some other high-ranking people that I perjured myself, that they never declined these cases, and that I was lying. So when I find out about this, I wound up having to call the OIG on myself and say, hey, man, you guys need to investigate this because I've been accused of a felony. And if I committed it, then I need to be held accountable. But if not, I want my name cleared. So it led, it led to a four-year, seemed like never-ending battle to clear my name for some of the allegations. Um, and, you know, in the end, I prevailed. Like, you know, uh, even Congress kind of called out the DOJ basically saying you left an agent, you know, trying to hang an agent out to dry to cover up for dirty lawyers. So, you know, a lot more detail in the book about all of these things I'm talking about. But it was an eye opener, man. And like I said, the sad part is that, 
Yeah, some people resigned. One person pled the fifth and then resigned. Um, U.S. attorney was, you know, going to get canned. He left. The guy who who uh, sent out that email. But um, a lot of the people who, like I said, were directly involved in this are still there. Some of them are in higher positions than they were back in the day. And I put it all out there. And some of the stories you're going to read in there are really going to piss you off. You guys know who Derek Waltz is, right? Yeah, Derek's a friend. And, um, you know, I, I sent the manuscript before I before it got published to a couple of people who I just wanted to kind of get, like, put in check. Like, hey, what do you think? Is this good? And it's funny because Derek was texting me from a plane. He signed up for the Wi-Fi on the plane. He's like, is this real? Are these the real names? I was like, yeah. Like, he was so pissed off reading the manuscript. And, it, it, you know, he's like, are you going to be okay mentioning names? I was like, yeah. I said, I got nothing to hide. A lot of this was out, came out in, you know, in Congress and in depositions. There's nothing I'm making up. And some of these folks, they look, they weren't held accountable. They didn't you know, hold themselves accountable. So now I'm going to help them hold themselves accountable. You know, the names are the names, you know. You know, some, the old saying, it isn't the crime, it's the cover-up, right? I mean, it's bad enough to have a policy of declining prosecution on case after case after case. But trying to turn that around in an effort to save your own face and, and trying to hammer somebody who's doing the right thing, that's the, that's the crime. One thing is lazy, the other is a crime, right? Um, and so the cover-up in this case is what really makes this um, as much a scandal as anything. Trying to throw you to the wolves as though you were doing something wrong when in reality, you're just trying to do your job. Yeah. So and, I, I, and nothing fancy. I mean, it, look, what happened with Fast and Furious, that's really the most appalling part is they abandoned the principles of like routine policing, right? You know, someone's involved in a transaction, stop the car, ask questions. If you have multiple people in the car, right? Separate them. They, they weren't doing these things. They, but here's the other thing though, again, not defending the agents. I did ask the case agent one time, like, hey, man, what, is that, look, she was a friend. We went through the academy again. I'm like, hey, man, what were you thinking? And she she broke down. I mean, you know, and look, I, I couldn't imagine the pressure they were under. I was under a different kind of pressure, you know. And she's like, Pete, there were times when we did stop the car. And, you know, we, we would identify, and we would call Emery, who was the name of the, the lead prosecutor, and who, by the way, is also the prosecutor on a grenade case, um, which I get into great depth in the book. And he would say, well, you know, yeah, we understand that this person bought this many hundred guns before, but how do we prove that this particular transaction he's not buying for himself? Let him go. You know, there was another instance where the, the, the traffickers saw ATF outside, called the Scottsdale police and said, hey, man, we think we might be getting robbed, right, or something like that. And the Scottsdale police, unbeknownst to the Scottsdale police, gave these people an escort away from the scene. It's a, wow. a complete shit show. Complete shit you can't show. make that up. No, you can't you make you know, that up. And you know what, Dan? You 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 nailed it. That the cover up is always worse. And and to put it in perspective, uh, the Attorney General of the United States, Eric Holder, was held in contempt of Congress over this, which I think was the first time and only time that's ever happened. So you know, it gives everyone a perspective of where this laid and where it got to. Uh, a horrific situation and God, I can only imagine what you were going through Pete with, with knowing it, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking when you know the truth, you know, what's going on and they come after you for telling the truth and knowing the truth and wanting to uphold your oath to uphold the constitution and your role in ATF. And they come after you. 
And you know what? Like Dan said at the beginning of the show, God bless you for for standing up and doing the right thing. You, 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 I'll tell you a funny part of this. When, you know, obviously, look, I never looked to get involved in this. I just wanted to go through my career. I wanted to be a decent boss. It, it, one of the things that was heartbreaking was, you know, we, we talked before about Southern District and the cases. Man, I would have never been able to make the cases I made without that partnership with lawyers, right? I mean, those Southern District prosecutors were great. In fact, there were a couple cases from Phoenix. I even pitched to SDNY, which thank God I did, because when they were making allegations like that, oh, he, you know, Pete didn't want to lock those people up. I was like, well, yeah, call the Southern District. I called them about it. The U.S. Attorney's Office was not taking responsibility. They were trying to blame us. And then there was other cases like, oh, you know, Pete and his team that, you know, the, uh, they didn't want these people arrested. Well, we, not only did we call the Southern District, we called Mexico and we had proof. So if we didn't want them arrested, why would we be trying to call other bodies to prosecute them when the U.S. Right. Attorney right there wouldn't do their job? But one of the things that really pissed me off was, um, you know, the chief of staff for ATF at the time was a really good guy. And look, I had some top cover. You know, I'm not like, that's how I think I survived my career was because some good people in ATF leadership that replaced the old regime said, hey, man, as long as you're telling the truth, we have your back. I mean, it didn't make the fight any easier because DOJ wanted my scalp. But um, guy named his, his name was Joe. He's like, Pete, the reason they're pissed at you is because, you know, the other whistleblowers aren't management. They're not leadership. And I'm think about that for a second. So because I'm a leader and I saw something wrong and called it out, then I betrayed other leadership. Like, if anything, that's what you should want in government. Exactly. A leader. leader to do is to step up. And, and you know, look, when I was a special agent in charge in Miami, when I was the D8 the deputy assistant director over training, I never crushed somebody for coming to me with a problem or saying, hey, Pete, your, baby, your baby's ugly. I mean, I, I actually enjoyed those conversations. I even enjoyed it when they would escalate into like a, a little argument and I never took it personal. But I mean, I want to know where the landmines are. I was never arrogant enough to think I knew everything. But here, these folks were pissed, apparently because I was a leader and spoke up. Well, guess what? That's what I thought my duty was, to, to speak up and lead. And it was. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it was sad to see my agents would never reach their full potential because of something that was outside of their control. But, it, you know, what? for the U.S. Attorney's Office, Man, there were some good prosecutors that came in from the county, like because it's a big pay bump to become an AUSA if you're a Maricopa County prosecutor. And some of them were solid, just really good people. And they would come in all enthusiastic, thinking they could make a difference. And then you talk to them six months later, and they were just beaten down because they couldn't do their jobs either. I mean, the taxpayers in Arizona were not well served um, by that U.S. Attorney's Office. And I've heard it hasn't gotten much better, if, if at all better, frankly, which is sad. So you were uh, in charge of uh, a team in the Phoenix office, and the Phoenix office at the time was dealing with a level of violent crime. Um, the cartel, the cartels ushered in a series of kidnappings, yes. home invasions, murders, brutal stuff going on on our side of the border as well as on the Mexican side. And the people of Arizona were dealing with this. Yeah, this was. I mean, I, I know some people in the Phoenix Police Department who told me there was a period of time uh, coming into the last. 15 or so years ago, where the uptick in crime, especially kidnappings, the drug-related kidnappings, I mean, these are dangerous to the entire community. Yeah. The influx of guns that are rolling past them, the amount of firearms that are out there in the hands of people who don't give a damn where the bullet ends, as long as it goes through the intended victim. Right. This is the kind of stuff that law enforcement is sworn to protect the public against. And you would think the machinery of the Department of Justice would have as its number one priority the protection of the people of the state of Arizona in the Arizona offices. Instead, they had 
whatever the the, the reasonel or re- reasoning or rationale was for declining prosecution, I can only venture to guess. But the cover-up part of it, right, that's the part that really gets under my skin. If you want to search for truth, you want people to be in, in positions of authority who have that as their top priority, right? And so we have the Attorney General of the United States failing to turn over, willfully failing to turn over documents to Congress with regards to this investigation, being found in contempt, and scot-free. Nothing happened to him. This is why people don't trust the Department of Justice in this country. This is part of the many reasons, right? And it's not agents like you and supervisors like you who do the right thing. We look for, we pray for people like you to step, come forward and, and have the courage to say, this is what's actually going on. Uh, because we need that if we're ever going to fix it. Yeah. Um, but I'm so sorry you had to go through that, Pete. Um, but it, you, know, you couldn't have been in, in a better place for a guy with your integrity, your courage, your savvy, um, to be there at that time. You know, it all happens for a reason, right? I mean, you helped shed light on something that desperately needed. And that one whistleblower who came through, you had that person's back. Yeah. And that's important. That's what we do in this occupation, isn't it? We have each other's back. And not just in the street, but everywhere. When you're right, have each other's back. And you did that. So thank you for doing that. Sure. No, I was my duty. And look, I didn't know John. I don't know that I even met him to that point. But I knew he was telling the truth. And that, that the even disgust indicting the guy to me was absolutely like beyond appalling. But, you know, here's, here's another thing that's kind of said. And by the way, you, you mentioned home invasions and kidnappings. That's the reason why Fast and Furious, um, well, it, had that case been in my group, it would have never happened because we would have stopped those cars. And if the U.S. Attorney's Office said, oh, keep it going, we would have gone somewhere else. I mean, but uh, we were we were retasked, our group, with being the um, home invasion group. Um, and that's because, yeah, from 2010, 11, Phoenix led the United States in home invasions and kidnappings. And I think they were second in this hemisphere behind Mexico City. So the violence that the cartels brought across the border, um, you know, was it was obvious and it was astounding. But, but there's another part of Fast and Furious that really pisses me off and it, and it kind of touches in on current events, right? When we got tips, 90% of them, like I said before, came from gun dealers. The dynamic was those guns would never get traced, right? So because they were in our custody, we had them brand new. They weren't something we found on the street. If we found something on the street, we would trace it. So for for years, the gun dealers knew that when they would make these transactions, the guns weren't going to hurt anybody. Well, during Fast and Furious, um, some of the larger gun dealers were like, hey, wait a minute. Why all of a sudden are our guns being traced? Because what happens with the trace is, you know, the, the police department will Call ATF, say we want this trace. The ATF, it's all done telephonically because there's no database. ATF will call the manufacturer, say, hey, where did you ship this gun to? If it's a wholesaler, they'll call there and then they call the dealer. So now all of a sudden, the dealers who we dealt with for years and who were honorable people start getting calls from Mexico or from ATF saying, hey, your gun was traced in Mexico. Um, you know, we need to know who you sold it to. And they're in their mind saying, wait a minute, I told ATF who the fuck. I said, why are our guns all of a sudden being recovered in the street. So the gun dealers asked for a meeting with ATF and ATF showed up and so did the federal prosecutor on the case, Emery Hurley. And they told these dealers, no, man, you're good to go. Continue to sell. We're doing something different. Continue to sell. So the dealers like, hey, man, I don't feel comfortable doing this. The dealers had their lawyer there. No, no, no. Good. You're good to go. Continue to do it. You're helping your government. Well, guess what? The government of Mexico was now suing those dealers Right. Not the U.S. government suing the dealers that did what ATF and what 
um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Arizona told them to do, right? And now you look at what's happening now with the gun dealers, where ATF has taken this zero tolerance thing, which they tried in the 80s and it failed, right? Um, and they're they're alienating the people who we police. I mean, we police the gun industry, right? We, we regulate it. We had good partnerships that were built up during the tenure of uh, Bita Jones, who was the first Senate confirmed director, and his successor, Tom Brandon. They they strongly believe that Tom used to say that gun dealers are our first line of defense in cases involving gun violence and firearms trafficking. Well, now they're crushing these people. And some of these people are still being sued by the government of Mexico, where it's like, I, I just don't understand sometimes how we change course in, in our duties and just continue to fuck things up. Right. So, wow. You know, so, well, um, go ahead. <laughs> uh, where do you start? You, uh, <laughs> you have a, a brand new project, which I know you're proud of. Uh, that's, that's out now in your book. Uh, let's talk about your book, the title, where, uh, where it's going to be, everything about it. Well, it's called the deadly path. How Operation Fast and Furious and, bought, and Bad Lawyers Armed Mexican Cartels. And um, look, if you watch, like I said, if you watch the testimony um, and you watch the news back then, there was a Republican version of events and a Democrat version of events. And the, the, the truth is actually um, never really been told. And then I get into great detail about the grenade smuggling case, because in my opinion, that was as bad, if not worse, than Fast and Furious. Because I mean, look, kill somebody with a gun, you got to point the gun at them. You throw a grenade into a bar or into a police station, that's an indiscriminate killer. Uh, I think when folks read it, they're going to get upset. But I think that people need to know that these kind of things happen in government. Look, accountability is something that I always tried to hold myself to. I always held my agents to it. I wasn't a strict disciplinarian per se, but when somebody fucked up, we would have a conversation and we would fix the behavior. Um, that didn't happen with Fast and Furious. So, and, and it talks about some of the stuff that happened afterwards, but it, it's not just about the, 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 the scandal itself, because that people have written books on Fast and Furious. I'm talking about what happened in the years before and some of the stuff that happened after that allowed Fast and Furious to, to happen in the first place. Um, because look, it can happen again somewhere. And it, again, it's not like ATF agents took a front and loader and brought guns to the border and dumped them over the border to arm the cartels. This was like a, this was the abandoning of basic police techniques um, to try to do something fancy. So there are lessons to be learned to make sure that something like Fast and Furious doesn't happen again. And and I also hope there's some leadership lessons to be learned there about doing the right thing and standing up and taking care of your people. And there's a nice chapter. It's probably going to get my phone tapped about how the FBI uh, <laughs> tried to dirty up one of my agents with a complete set of lies. And, and here I was a brand new supervisor. And um, I basically had to stand up for the agent when my my, you know, my chain of command above me wouldn't. <laughs> uh, and in the end, that actually uh, you know turned out well, too. Um, where the FBI sack in that office actually thanked me for standing up for my agents and said he'd been given some bad information. So, I mean, you'll, you'll see that story will be somewhat uh, funny, but at the same time, frustrating. Well, we can't wait to get the book. The book doesn't really hit uh, the market. It's not going to be available in print till March. Is that correct? Yeah, which really upsets me because I really want to get hands on it. But yeah, it's available for pre-order now and it, it'll hit the shelves on March 5th. And like I said, there's nothing in there that's not true. I name names. Um, nothing's changed. And um, like I said, it's nothing I wouldn't say in court or nothing I haven't said under oath 
It's just a lot of that stuff in that deposition, you know, just if it didn't fit the political narrative, it it stayed in that room. So now it'll be out for everybody to see. You know, Pete, you, uh, first of all, Tom and I couldn't be more thankful and appreciative of your time and for your willingness to come on the show and share your story for our audience. And we also couldn't have more respect for you and appreciation for you and to call you a friend is an honor. Thank um, you. I feel, you embody I feel the same what we, way. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Uh, we tried to have a halfway decent reputation on the job back <laughs> in New York. But, uh, you know, we try on this show very hard to give our audience the backstage pass, but the truth. We have a commitment to the truth. We will never let a guest come on here and, and throw a bunch of crap at the audience and expect it to be believed. We won't do that. And so you are the embodiment of that. You have integrity. You're going to tell the truth, even if it makes people uncomfortable. I don't care. We don't care. The truth matters. And so that has been the hallmark of your career. It is, it is one of the things that will define you long after all of us are gone. Uh, I can't wait to read the book, The Deadly Path. And um, we look forward to more conversations with you. Uh, and thank you so much, Pete. Keep doing the great work that you are doing out there. You make uh, impassioned um, presentations uh, 9-11 uh, at, at the memorial recently. And um, we're just very proud to call you a friend. So thank you. Thanks. No, look, I, I was trained by some great people, lost some friends along the way in the line of duty. So I think it's my duty to just try to do the right thing, you know, uh, to pay back the folks who taught me this job and, and to pay it forward. So, I mean, that's why here, here I'm retired and I'm still kind of advocating for law enforcement. That's who we are, you know. And look, I, I think we have a duty to call it out when it's done wrong, potentially honest mistakes, you know, uh, or honest mistakes. But, um, you know, so I'll be the law enforcement's biggest cheerleader when they get it right. But, um, you know, it's it's paying back the folks who took the time to see something in me and decide I was worth teaching the ropes. And, you know, hey, look, all, all the integrity and character I have, I learned as a cop in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. So you remember Chief Joseph Borelli, former chief of detectives in the NYPD. He was the captain of detectives that the son of Sam taunted with letters to, uh, to the Daily News. And to him, uh, Borelli, Chief Borelli said something once at a lunch thing that I was in at an awards event in Brooklyn in the 8th Free Precinct many, many years ago. And he talked about the different types of mistakes that people make and how he viewed the disciplinary process within the ranks of the Detective Bureau. And he said there's two types of mistakes, and I view them differently. Mistakes of the head and mistakes of the heart. Mistakes of the head are the reason why we have erasers on pencils and everybody makes them. You coach the person, you correct them, you prop them back up, you send them back out there with some wind under their sail, and they'll do the right thing generally. Mistakes of the heart, you got to get to, you got to get rid of that person. That's a bad person. And this is a difference between somebody who makes an oops and somebody who's intentionally, and that's where the cover up comes up. That's mistakes of the heart. And so, uh, thanks for, for highlighting that today. Um, don't, not sure why I shared that story, but it left an impact on me. And that was 30 something years ago that I remember that specific quote from him. Yeah, it's a good quote. But it is. Yep. Uh, Pete, you have a website uh, that people can uh, read a little bit more about you and, and uh, some info about that. What's, the, what's your website? It's peterjforselli.com. And I look, a lot of stuff I have on my LinkedIn page. And that's because when Fast and Furious happened, I thought I would need a job. So I did create a very detailed <laughs> resume on LinkedIn. Um, and I, I often comment on law enforcement things or things you know, I call bullshit sometimes. Sometimes maybe I talk too much on LinkedIn a lot as well. But again, you know, I, I want to support law enforcement and, um, you know, and just pull it as I see it. Never silence the truth, right? Never silence the truth. Never muzzle yourself when you have a truth to say that that needs to be said. 
And just last night, I think it was, you were on um, Fox News with Laura Ingram. Yes. And uh, I got a chance to catch that. And she called you Pete for Chelly, which is why I got confused. Even though you've been Pete for Selly to me for all these years, I've heard your name. That's why I asked you earlier. Is it for Selly or for Chelly? It depends if you're in if you're in New York, Washington, or in Sicily, right? Exactly. Yeah, and I answered the both. Yeah. I've been called so much worse as a Bronco. <laughs> <laughs> haven't we all? Haven't we all? Well, you know, Pete, we uh, we did it again. You know, we got one of these guests, Dan, that just blows the roof off the show. Uh, we knew it was going to be like this. We couldn't wait for it. Uh, and Pete, you didn't disappoint. And you know what? We, there's other stories that we've said this, but yours really rings true. You should really be proud of yourself because you did something that's not popular in certain worlds by certain people but you did the right thing. And, you know, we, we retire, but we don't go away. Uh, that's for sure. You know, so, uh, I'm proud to know you. Danny's proud to know you and to call you a friend, uh, means a lot to us. And your appearance on the show means even more to us, you know, to get the story out and get the book out, which everyone needs to get pre-order it now. Uh, and then once it's out on uh, March 5th, 2024, make sure you go and get it because it's important. It's important because it's history. It's not made up. It's all true. And it's made and it's written by someone that went through it. And that should uh, hold a certain level uh, for people to go and get. So thank you again, Pete, for everything you did, your dedication, your career. And most of all, appearing on our show. Uh, thank you so much, buddy. Yes, no, honored to be here. And thanks for the invite. You know, it, it helps me sell the book so and get the yeah. truth out. But thank you very much, guys. Definitely. Dan? Tom, take us out. Take us out, buddy. <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, to everybody, thank you. Uh, P. Forselli, my partner, Dan Murphy. Uh, make sure everyone, PeterJForselli.com, make sure you go to it. Check out. Uh, Pete's story. Uh, don't miss us on our two channels on youtube.com slash at gold shields and rumble.com slash gold shields, as well as all our audio uh, podcast platforms. Don't miss this show. It's going to, it's awesome. We had a great time. And as always, say a prayer for all our law enforcement officers out there, our military officers. Everybody out there, uh, they do a thankless job. They don't get paid. No one took this job in law enforcement or the military to get rich. No one did. They did it because of what they feel in their heart. And uh, we did it. Pete did it. So give a high, uh, a fist bump when you see him in the store. Wave to him on the street because that means everything to them. So thank you again uh, to my partner, Dan. Pete. This is Tom Smith for Gold Shields. Thank you again, everyone. Stay safe. We'll see you soon.